Well, guys, we've made it to the end of our series in Isaiah 40 to 55. This is chapter 55. So I invite you to turn there with me this morning. We come to this culmination point of our series. So really, chapters 40 to around 4950 were really about, as we called it, the trial of the false gods, where the prophet Isaiah says, here's the true God, here are the idols of the nations and the false gods. And he just went chapter after chapter critiquing the idols, demolishing those idols, attacking the idolatry, and giving a glorious picture of who God is in contrast to those false gods and the claims that the worshipers of those false gods made. And then we come really from 50, we're building up now, 49, 50, coming up to chapter 53 with the great suffering servant fulfilled in the sufferings of Jesus, your Savior and mine. Fulfilled when the Son of God was executed, put to death, and fulfilled those scriptures. And last week we saw what happened. What did the blood of that Messiah accomplish? It gave us the church. It gave us one another as the body of Christ. And we saw that we have to belong to that church if we belong to Christ. And now, this, this week, we come to chapter 55, and our topic is the second thing that the suffering servant accomplished. He suffered and died and rose again to accomplish our salvation, chapter 53. And out of that comes the church, chapter 54. And now, chapter 55, we get a beautiful prophetic explanation of the gospel. And so our title today is what is the gospel? Last week could have been called what is the church? This week is what is the gospel? What Jesus did in chapter 53 is what makes chapter 55 possible. It's what gives us the gospel. So that's what we're going to focus on today. So I want to ask you to please stand as we read together from Holy Scripture chapter 55 book of Isaiah, I'm going to read for us verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9. This is God's holy word for us as people today. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. This is God's holy word for us as people today. Let's ask him to bless our time in this word. Father, we do praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in your holy scriptures. That you have spoken by the words of the prophets and through the apostles. And in these last times through your dear son, the Lord Jesus, the fullness of 
and height of your revelation of who you are. And we thank you that you've given us the scriptures, your infallible, inspired, powerful, authoritative, supreme and sufficient word to teach us all that we need to know for life and godliness, for salvation and for obedience. All that we need to believe and all that we need to do is here in your word. And we ask that as we open up this word, you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our very lives And write your truth in our hearts. Etch your truth on our very souls. And let it begin even now to mold and shape and transform us to be your holy people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If I were to, just at random, just pick one person from this section, one from this section, one from that section, and have each of you come up and line up here, and I say, all right, you have, you have a minute and a half, two minutes. Step to the mic and tell us what the gospel is. Who would be confident they could step right up and do it? You don't actually have to raise your hands, it's fine. I just say it to make you think. Do, huh, could I do it? If I had two minutes of your time, could I, you know, elevator speech gospel. You're on the elevator, you know, you've got just a few seconds, minute or so, to tell your neighbor, here's what the gospel is. Now, obviously, you could spend a lifetime talking about what the gospel is, but could you, could you summarize it? Could you give it in a neat, Boom, 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 here it is. It's one of the most important questions we can ask. What is the gospel? I mean, a lot's riding on this. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, right? Where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation. In the gospel, we have the saving power of God. So you need the gospel if you want to be saved. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, this is what Paul says about the gospel. And these are sobering words that we need to remember. Galatians chapter 1. Most of the time in Paul's letters, he starts out by saying, you know, greetings in the name of the Lord. It's, you know, how you guys doing? It's good to see you. It's, how have you been? I give thanks for you. I'm really proud of this and this and this. You're doing a great job here. Now, now let's get into my topic. That's how a lot of the letters start, you know, paraphrasing. In Galatians, he announces who he is, Paul an apostle, da 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 da. And then, Chapter 1, verse 6, he just says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Just immediately, his whole tone is very, very upset in this letter. Very stern. You know, greetings, grace to you in peace. Now, listen to me. What is going on in Galatia? 
What are you doing? In chapter 3, he's going to say, you stupid Galatians. Okay, Paul's not thrilled. Okay? Not thrilled. And it's not because there's rampant sin and ungodliness and disobedience and carnality and wickedness in the Galatian churches. This is written to multiple churches. Galatia is a, think of it as a county with lots of churches in it. And so this is a letter that's supposed to go around to those churches. He's not rebuking all this rampant ungodliness. Where's the fruit of the Spirit? Where are the Beatitudes? What are you guys doing? No, they were doing fine on that score. His problem was, you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Verse 7, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then Paul says in Galatians 1.8, even if we, so Paul, Timothy, the apostles, even if we... Or an angel from heaven were to preach a gospel that's contrary to the one you heard at first, let him be accursed. And let him be accursed is polite ESV language for to hell with that man. God condemn him to hell Forever. That's what let him be accursed means. Cut him out of the kingdom. Rub his name out of the book of life. Right to the flames with that dude. That's, that's what it means. Even if we... Like Paul said, I preached you the gospel when I first got here. If I came back and started preaching a different gospel, then you should tell me, basically, to you're done. You're damned. To hell with you, Paul. That, or if an angel comes down out of heaven, if an angel appeared out, out of that thing up there and just kind of floated down and was like, here's the gospel. You're saved by works. We should all go, no, you're a demon. <laughs> you're not from heaven. Accursed. And then verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So this is pretty important stuff. What is the gospel? Angels will be cast into hell if they get this one wrong. And same for us, if we mess up the gospel. Because it's about what are you trusting? Where's your hope? Where are you placing your confidence? What do you think gives you the right to go to heaven? Is basically what we're talking about here. And if it has anything to do with anything other than the biblical gospel, then we're trusting in a false hope and a false gospel. And in our society, let's just take America, in our country, how many false gospels do you suppose there are? How, and, and a false gospel means you got a false Jesus. How many churches don't have a clue who Jesus is? And are preaching false gospels. When you've got a country where, yeah, Christianity still is, is declining in terms of just the, you know, the popular religion among just the masses. Sure, it's declining. But still, it's way over 50% of people who say they're Christian. Do you think, let's just throw out a number, I don't know if this is accurate, let's say 65%, 70%. Do you think 70% of, of our country is going to heaven? 
I don't. And yet, why do these people think they're Christians? When many of them, sure they are, but many of them aren't. So what, what makes them think that? Answer, a false gospel. So what we want to talk about today is, what is this gospel? How do you know when you've actually believed the true gospel? Can you tell a false gospel from the true one, the real thing from a counterfeit? What are the parts of the gospel? How do you know when you've actually believed the gospel? How do you know when you've actually shared the real gospel? And not accidentally peddled off a false one. With good intentions. Maybe not realizing it. But oops, that was... Kind of told that person a false gospel it turns out. How, do you, how can you tell? That's what we want to see today. And in our passage, Isaiah gives us five elements of a biblical gospel. Now, I'm sure there are more. We could look at other passages, but this is where we are in our series. So what does Isaiah 55 have to tell us about the biblical gospel? And this morning, what we want to do as we go through these is to test yourself, test ourselves to see, am I sharing a biblical gospel? Am I believing a biblical gospel? These are very important questions. So, element number one. Five elements of a biblical gospel from Isaiah 55. Number one, verses one through three. The biblical gospel is a gospel of free grace. Let's read verses one through three together. The prophet says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Let's just stop there. Come, everyone who is thirsty. Come, everyone. You don't need any money. Come without your money and purchase. How do you purchase something that's free? He says... He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. When you believe the gospel, you are purchasing something that's free. And the way you do that is, you just receive it. You just receive it. There's no transaction that has to happen. There's no exchange that needs to take place. It's free. Come to the waters Take the water and drink. You don't need any money here. Come and take the wine and the milk without money and without price. Without price, that means free grace. Free grace. And so the question is, if you're just supposed to receive it without offering something in return, are you making the mistake of trying to pay God back for His grace? Or are you making the mistake of feeling like now you're trying to earn something from God? And you say, well, no, of course not. But wait a minute. Many of us probably are. Without meaning to. Here's here's how we do it. We think, God has been so good to me, the least I can do is do this for Him. I I need to start doing something. And all of a sudden, we fall into what? 
Some preachers have called the debtor's ethic. Where our Christian lives of obedience and service and, you know, doing Christian stuff is all supposed to be this sort of, well, God did this for me, so now I ought to do this for Him. And that's this exchange. God gave me grace, now I've got to pay Him back with obedience. Stop. That's not the basis of the Christian life. Paying God back for how good He's been to you. The basis of the Christian life is pure gratitude. Pure gratitude. And out of nothing but thankfulness for God's grace, you go and take all those good works you're supposed to do, that you're commanded to do, and you don't try to say, look God, I'm doing this for you, because you did so much for me. He doesn't need your good works. He doesn't want them. He tells you, take all those good works I command you to have, get them all in a big sack, and take them out, and hand them out to your neighbor. Pure gratitude from God, and all your good works you give away to your neighbor. Purely to love and serve and help your neighbor. And not to get anything from God, and not to get anything back from your neighbor. Just gratitude and love. And when you start doing that, now, you've freely you have received, Jesus says, now freely give. The other way we distort this is, we start thinking that the way God feels about us from day to day depends upon our performance that day. Ooh, well, I I really said some things I shouldn't have said that day. Or, man, my attitude really stank at work today. Or, man, I really shouldn't have been so short with my spouse. Or, ooh, I haven't read my Bible in two weeks. And when's the last time I prayed? Not just before food, but like really just like took 10, 20 minutes at some point in the day and just... Spent some time with God in prayer. Man, it's probably been two, three months since I've done that. God must be really, ooh. I must be running out of time. I bet his patience are really short with me today. I better start doing X, Y, and Z to get back in God's good graces. And like our ups and downs, we fluctuate up and down and back and forth. Our obedience waxes and wanes and it's here and there like the tides. That sometimes we're, we're high tide and we're like, yes! And then sometimes the tides weigh out and we're just... Right? And we start thinking that the way we ebb and flow is the way God ebbs and flows and how He feels about us. But what we've done is we've started telling ourselves a false gospel. That God evaluates us in ourselves without Jesus. In our book club, our Reform Life book club we've been reading, uh, the book we just got finished reading, uh, had just talked about this problem. And it had a beautiful line in it. In all of my ups and downs... And my obedience and disobedience, my back and forth. The question I need to ask myself in those times is not, how righteous am I? The question we have to ask ourselves is, how righteous is Christ? Man, I'm, I'm a jerk and I blew it today and I've been awful the last couple of weeks and I'm just, oh gosh, I'm a mess, I'm not obedient, I'm, I feel like I'm going backward in my sanctification, I'm just... Sin, 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 sin. What is going on with me? I just feel awful and I don't feel very righteous right now. And God certainly knows I'm not very righteous right now. Yeah, God sees all that disobedience, but He's not looking at you by yourself. He's looking at you in union with Jesus. And He's telling you, Come, everyone who thirsts. Are you so dry right now spiritually? Come. 
come to the waters and drink deep. Are you spiritually impoverished? Come buy and eat and leave your money at home. Just come and take and receive. Feast and drink without money and without price. Grace is free. Give up this performance-based nonsense. Quit trying to pay me back. Quit trying to be good enough. Stop trying to earn it. Grace is free. So when you share the gospel, and when you tell yourself the gospel, you've got to remind yourself, it's free. I'm not coming to exchange anything. It's not a contract. It's not a transaction. Grace is free. And the only way you get free grace is you just come empty-handed and take it without price. Look at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. It is so exhausting and full of despair. When you try to base your relationship with God on your performance. It's not satisfying. This says, why are you spending all your money on stuff that can't satisfy? Why are you trying to find delight in things that cannot delight you? All we're, if we start basing our performance, all we're going to end up with is either despair because we know we can't do it and we keep failing... Or, we're going to get really proud and arrogant and boastful and think, well, I'm doing a lot better than that guy or that woman. It's, that's, those are the only two options when it's performance-based. Despair or pride. They're two sides of the same depraved coin. We need, a, we need the true gospel. When you've got to realize that what God is offering us in the gospel is Jesus, and Jesus satisfies perfectly. The one who said, everyone who, who believes in me and everyone who comes to me will never thirst and never hunger. I will satisfy you with the living water of life. Why are you trying to get satisfaction somewhere else? So the question you got to ask yourselves is, are you preaching to Jesus who satisfies the longing soul forever? Or do you have a Jesus that doesn't fully satisfy and you're going to have to keep looking and keep searching? Jesus plus is not the gospel. Are you satisfied in Christ this morning? Is He your joy? Have you come to Him and found your satisfaction in Him? Or are you yourself still looking and searching for that contentment that just keeps eluding you? Do you have the true gospel? Verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. What Isaiah is talking about there is the covenant promises that he made to David. That David would be considered his son. And that David would always have a descendant to sit upon the throne. He's there referring to his unconditional love and promises he swore to David. And he says, I will swear to you the same unconditional 
love that I gave to him. An everlasting covenant of peace. The gospel of free grace is a gospel of grace that saves fully, that saves freely, and that saves forever. Fully, freely, and forever, God will be at peace with you in Christ. Is that the gospel you believe today? Is that the one that you share with those who need it? A gospel of free grace. Second element of the gospel from Isaiah 55. This is in verses 4 and 5. The gospel of the Lord. The gospel of the Lord. Verses 4 and 5. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Now, verse 4 Isaiah is speaking about the descendant of David. He just mentioned David in verse 3. Now he's talking about the descendant of David, the true king, the Messiah, the everlasting king that is to come. Verse 4 is spoken about this Messiah who would come. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. And then in verse 5, Isaiah speaks to the Messiah. Verse 4 is about the Messiah. Verse 5 is spoken directly to the Messiah. It says, Behold you, not he, you, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because the Lord your God, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. That's about Jesus. He is that Messiah. He is that King. And this says, He is going to be the Lord of the nations. One day Jesus shall have the obedience of all the peoples and nations of the earth. Every country on planet earth will be a Christian nation. Now, whether that happens this side of the second coming or after the second coming is a debate we can have. But the point is, Jesus is going to reign to the ends of the earth and every knee will bow. Now or later, it's coming. It says, you are a witness to the peoples, the Gentiles, a leader and commander for the peoples. The leader of the nations, the sovereign of all the world. We already know he has that authority now. He said that. In the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. Therefore, go and fulfill Isaiah 55 and call the nations. This says, a nation that did not know, a nation that did not know the Lord will run to you. The nations will run and stream into the church. They will all come and bow to Jesus. The gospel is about bowing to a Lord. The gospel is about bending the knee before a king. It is a gospel of free grace. And when you reach out your hand to take that free grace, you do not reach out on your feet. You reach out with bended knee before a sovereign. You reach out 
on your knees like this. This is how you get the free grace of the gospel. It's not standing in line. <laughs> Come on, I'm in a hurry. It'll just take five minutes, right? I, 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 yeah, give me Jesus and I got to get going. Which is too often how it's presented. It's going to take more than five minutes. It's going to take you on the ground. Because that's the only way we can tell your hands are really empty. Is when you're empty before him on the ground. He is king and lord. And so a gospel that doesn't have a lord is a false gospel. A gospel that's running wild out there today is a gospel that says you can take Jesus' as Savior and leave the Lordship behind. That is a wicked gospel. It's a lie. And it's why many people think they're saved when they're not. Well, I prayed a prayer, preacher. I did that when I was six. I wrote it in the back of my Bible. So I'm good to go. Punched a card. Fire insurance has been purchased. We're all right. Don't talk to me about what I need to do for Jesus because he already did it all right. Free grace, free grace, free grace. And I wrote the date in the back of my Bible. Look at that, May 24th, 2000. So I'm, as, I'm, as, I'm already basically in heaven. And you can't tell the person apart from the, from, from the wicked co-workers they have. From the unbeliever. You can't tell them apart. You can't tell. They look the same. You, 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 you've bent the knee to Jesus? Doesn't look like it. Could have fooled me. A gospel that says you can just have Jesus as your Savior, just believe, just pray the prayer, just jump through the hoop, just come to the altar, just do the thing that the preacher said to do, and you're good to go, and then you can get up and leave and live like the world, and it doesn't matter. Because it's faith alone, right? It's free grace, right? A gospel that doesn't have you bending the knee to a Lord is a false gospel. You can't take a piece of Jesus. It's the whole Christ or none at all. Have you run to the Lord? I remember when I was in youth group and the youth pastor just made a very simple... His whole sermon was this. He said, no, Lord, is a contradiction. No, Lord, is gibberish. Because if, if the answer is no, he ain't really Lord. The only thing you say to a Lord is, yes. Because you're on your knee. You've sworn loyalty and allegiance to his kingship, to his throne, to his crown, to his dominion. The gospel is a gospel of the Lord. Free grace and a sovereign king. Grace... It's the grace of the Lord. First two elements. Number three. This one flows directly out of the Lordship of Jesus. A gospel of repentance. A gospel of repentance. The whole sermon could be just this point. I will resist. <laughs> this is the part we read. Verses 6 through 9. Look at verse 6. And seven, seek the Lord while he may be found. Now it says seek because in verse five it just said a nation that did not know you 
talking to Jesus, is going to run to you. So verse 6 says, seek the Lord. Be the one who runs to Jesus and do it now, it says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. What a terrifying verse. It sounds hopeful. Seek the Lord. That sounds good. While he may be found, what does that mean? Do you mean he won't always be around for us to seek him? Will, will there be a time when he can't be found? Yes. Call upon him while he is near. Do you mean there's going to be a time when he's far? Yes. Yes, think about the flood story. People had a certain amount of time to get on the boat. And when the door was shut... It didn't matter how many people were knocking on the door, trying to get in. It's over. The door's shut. The door will shut on all of us at some point. There is a window of time before He judges the quick and the dead. And that's the only window we have. Seek the Lord now while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. While the promise is still available, while the grace is still there, while you can still get into the market where you can buy and eat without money and without price, that which will satisfy you forever. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. His thoughts. <laughs> this nonsense that sin is just something you do on the outside, like some overt action is nonsense. What happens on the inside of us is sin too. Thoughts, desires, feelings, attitudes, dispositions, goals, agendas, aspirations. God is God of our internal life too. And He knows our thoughts. It's not just the outward actions, but the inward as well. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Forsake wicked ways, forsake wicked thoughts. And do what? Verse 7, let him return to the Lord. That's repentance. The word for, we were driving this direction, but then we did a little U-turn, and now we're driving the other way. I was going this way, I was set this direction, and then I turn this way. And you do the turning with brokenness over your sin. With godly grief over the sin. You turn and renounce and forsake. I will not go that direction anymore. Now I'm set to go this way. Will I swerve and take wrong turns? Absolutely. I'll keep messing it up, but I'm still overall, if you looked at the map and you saw the little GPS icon, I'm still going the same basic direction. I haven't turned around to go back that way. Yeah, I'm getting lost and don't know where to turn, but I'm still heading in the right direction that way, away from sin that's over there. That's what it is. That's what repentance is. Turn around. Go the other way. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's the beauty of it. Turn from sin and I swear to you on the life of my son, I will forgive you. I will pardon you. Abundant pardon. He will abundantly pardon. Which means we need to be abundantly pardoned. Because <laughs> we have an abundance of sin. A gospel of repentance. 
Turn from sin to the Lord. That is necessary to be forgiven. And if you think, I just had to pray the prayer, and I don't have to repent of anything, because that's works, and it's supposed to be faith alone, we've just totally twisted the gospel. Repentance is part of the gospel. That means there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. If I or an angel from heaven were to come down and say, you can have Jesus as Savior and leave Him behind as Lord, no repentance, no obedience, no Christian life, just believe and live like the world the rest of the time, that is a false gospel. A gospel that has no Lord is a gospel with no repentance. And a gospel with no repentance is a gospel with no saving power. We must turn from sin. And, and you've heard of this, right? The carnal Christian, the someone who can just, who says they're a believer, who says they believe in Jesus and they trust the gospel and they're on their way to heaven, but they don't have to grow, they don't have to obey, they don't have to be sanctified, they, don't, they can just live in wickedness. And they're still going to heaven, bless God, because I prayed the prayer. That prayer is worthless. Nobody gets to heaven by praying the prayer. And people thinking that all you got to do is jump through that hoop has sent more people to hell than any of the atheism and wickedness that's in our, in our society. And it's good, conservative, Christian preachers who peddle this nonsense who go to funerals and who say, well, you know what, I knew him, you know, yeah, this guy was a gang member and he was a drug dealer and he was wicked, but I was there when he prayed to receive Jesus when he was sick, so I know he's in heaven today. And if you think that doesn't happen, I mean, open los ojos. I mean, <laughs> open your eyes. And it's... It's foul stuff. And this isn't coming from liberals. This is coming from conservative evangelical pulpits. That you just come forward and do the prayer and you're good. No. Now I'm not saying nobody can get saved that way. I got saved that way. I went forward at some altar call and prayed a prayer. I did that several times before it worked. <laughs> Right? I went forward at least three times, and the you know, third time's a charm, I guess. But that little action isn't what saved anybody. In fact, I probably got saved in spite of the action. You get saved, and here was the difference. Here was the difference. Is the first two times I went forward, I was just, honestly, and I remember it vividly, I was just scared of hell. I just wanted out of that, whatever that was. It sounded horrific. It takes no new birth to not want to go to hell. No new birth at all. Just takes a little bit of sense. The difference was the third time I went forward is I wasn't going because I was worried about how hot hell was going to be. I went forward because now I see Jesus for who he is and I want him and not for what he can do for me. Just Him. That was the difference. He was everything all of a sudden. When a, when, when a couple hours before, pizza and going on dates and TV shows and jokes and friends. and That was everything. That was my whole world. But now Jesus is what I want. Now I see that He satisfies and I want Him. 
That's the difference. And that takes a supernatural work on the inside to change your heart. But when he changes your heart, he doesn't leave you in your sinful life. A new heart wants to walk in obedience. And the new heart wants to repent. It sees the Lord for who he is and bows the knee. That's what the new heart does. It's free grace. It's the free grace you receive from a sovereign Lord on your knees. And when you get up off your knees and turn around to go back into your, into your job on Monday or back into school or when you go back to live your regular life, you do it with repentance. You turn from sin and now that Lord you bowed the knee to, you're going to obey that Lord when you get to work on Tuesday. And when you're at home on Wednesday. And when you go through your daily life, He's going to be Lord each day. And so you're going to repent of your sin. God promises He will have compassion on us and that He will abundantly pardon us and He will richly forgive us if we repent of sin. And the reason He can make that promise is because of verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts." Uh, that often gets quoted out of context. It's just, well, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. I don't understand what I'm doing in life, and I don't know what God's up to, but His ways are higher than our ways. And that's true, right? But in context, my ways are higher than your ways means I forgive people unlike you. That's what it means. And my goodness... Are we not living in a culture that has forgotten how to forgive? You want to see what our ways are like? It's called cancel culture. It's called, let's dig up something that was leaked from eons ago in your past and let's beat you over the head with it and your career in life is over. Deplatformed, canceled, kicked off, you're done, you're finished. This promise is, if you come to Jesus and you, and you bow the knee and you, and you repent, he says, I will forgive you and I'm not going to go digging up junk from your past and hold that against you. And that's something that we need today. I'm not going to go dig up your old emails or go dig up the text you sent. I'm not going to go dig up that old time when... You did that horrible thing you regret and, and haven't done since then. I'm not going to go dig up that thing that's so embarrassing and those regrets and the shame that you felt when you did this or this happened to you. I'm not going to go digging up your past and use it to beat you over the head. And I'm not going to, God says, I'm not going to find out something about you one day that is going to make me change how I feel about you. We don't tell some of our closest friends some of the things that we've done in the past because we're afraid that man, even someone who knows me well and loves me, if they found out I did this or said that in the past 10, 20, 30 years ago, they might not look at me the same anymore. And we worry about that because there's vulnerability in being known fully and 100% open and raw and naked before someone. Yes, of course. And God says, that's how you are before me anyways. 
I see all that. And in spite of it, if you will turn from it and repent, I will forgive you for all of it. And it will be gone. And no one, not the devil himself, can bring it up against you. Nothing, no accusation, no shame. It will ever stick. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The gospel does not create a cancel culture. A gospel culture is one of abundant forgiveness for those who repent. And that's good news for sinners like us with shame in our past and mistakes and regrets. We need to have the assurance that God will not turn us away. And that's what he gives us here. And that's, that's a gospel that's radical for our cultural moment now. You can share this gospel, a gospel that is anti-cancel culture today. And it starts with repentance. And so what we need to do as a body is that we need to be higher in our thoughts and our ways. And when we see the canceling and all the whatever happening around us, to rise above it. Be higher than that, church. Be higher than that. When the person on the other side of the aisle or the political whoever that you don't like, when it comes out that he might have done this, that, and the other thing, if that guy repents, don't you be like everybody else and cancel him, her. No, if someone actually repents and is actually sorry, we're the people who have been given forgiveness freely, and so we, are, we ought to give it as well. We're the people who still believe in forgiveness. Who still believe in restoration. Making people new. That's a gospel that this culture will listen to. If God is merciful. Number four. We got a gospel of free grace. A gospel of a Lord. The Lord. A gospel of repentance. Four. A gospel of power. I love this one. Verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I love the picture of verse 10. This is one of Martin Luther's favorite pictures of the gospel. Verse 10, it's God's word alone that accomplishes salvation. God's word alone justifies us from sin and then sanctifies us from sinfulness. God's word does it all. In this picture, the rain and the snow come down from heaven and they do not go back up to heaven but they water the earth and they make the earth bring forth and sprout and give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Luther described it this way, just as the earth, thus the ground, cannot climb up to heaven and wring out the clouds and make the rains come down. All it can do is just sit there on the ground, because it's the ground, and just receive the rain. It has to wait for the rain. It has to receive the rain. It can't make it rain. And so we cannot force grace to come down from God. All we can do is be like a thirsty, parched land that just drinks it in and soaks it up. 
as God rains it down freely in His mercy. And when we receive the rains of grace in the gospel, it says, it will make us bring forth and sprout. It's God's grace alone that saves, and it's the Word alone that makes it happen. The Word is powerful. And also it says it will give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So the ground receives the rain, it becomes fruitful, and then it bears fruit for others. God's Word does that. It justifies us and it sanctifies us. It saves us and it makes us fruitful to serve those who are needy. God's Word alone does that. It is a word of power, a gospel of power. In verse 11, we also use this a little bit out of context sometimes too. It says that, So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It's not going to return to me empty or void, but it will accomplish that which I purpose. And sometimes, I mean, now again, it's a little out of context, but... It's used to be like, this is, see how God's sovereignty and like he has a decree and that he decrees things and it's going to come to pass. And that's true. You, yeah, that's, that's sort of the implication of this verse. But in context, it means God is watching over his gospel to make it do what he wants it to do. He is there watching as the rains of the gospel come down. He's watching over that word and I'm going to make it do what I sent it to do. God's word never fails. He is powerful over that word to make sure it does the work he sent it out to do. It does not come back empty. It doesn't come back void. It doesn't come back and say, well, try again next time. It's not, we, we do not have a gospel of a Jesus who tries to save and fails. Who just, he's doing everything in his power, 100% to save those, those sinners. And he's just always doing everything he can. But the sinner's just too stubborn. Almighty creature man just thwarts the will of God. No. You have a gospel of power. Jesus is not some weak, beggarly, little Savior who's knocking on the door. Please let me in. I want to save you so bad. Oh, please won't you let me in. This is a picture, right? This is a famous picture. And maybe it's in your house. But it's that uh, Revelation 3.20, you know, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man openeth unto me, yada, yada. That, that one, there's a painting of that. Maybe you've seen it. And it's Jesus standing there with like a little bit of light on his head and like vines around the door. And he's standing there and he's just like so gingerly knocking. And if you look closely, there's no knob on that door. Which means he can't get in. He, he needs you to let him save you. We don't have a gospel of a Jesus knocking on a knobless door. We have a Jesus who's mighty and strong. Who knows how to break down our defenses. Who kicks the door in when he wants you to be his. And says, you're mine. Rise from the dead and live. Because that's what's happening. It's not you're the sinner on the other side of the door looking through the peephole at Jesus doing his best and listening to him out there knocking and pleading. Oh, please let me in. And you're just like, ha, ha, ha. No, Jesus. Nice try. Sin is too good. Take a hike. Get lost. Whatever you're selling, we're not buying. And the sinner's in there and he has all the control 
That's nonsense. And a gospel, golly, the gospel is presented that way all the time. Of this weak, poor little Jesus. The actual scenario is, you're inside, dead on the floor, and then he comes in, knocks open the door, and raises you from the dead. That's an actual picture of what's going on. That's the gospel we have. God says, I am watching over my word, and it will accomplish the purpose I send it out to accomplish. It will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And if you're preaching a gospel of a Jesus whose word is not powerful to save unless you let it be, you're missing out on the true glory of the gospel. Last part of the gospel. A gospel of free grace, the gospel of the Lord, a gospel of repentance, a gospel of power, and finally a gospel of new creation. Verses 12 and 13. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. A gospel of new creation promises joy and peace for you, Christian. The fruit of the gospel is joy and peace in your life here and now. And it says that the creation breaks forth into singing and clapping as you journey towards your heavenly inheritance. You see, you are a new creature. You are a person from the future. God's new creation is out in front of us, new heavens and new earth. But by the gospel, you become a new creation here in the middle of history. God makes you in the middle of history fit to be an inhabitant of that world that is to come. He's making us fit for heaven. And he says as we journey through life, as the church is on its heavenly journey towards its inheritance, the creation is clapping its hands and the hills are singing because creation itself, right, from Sunday school this morning, creation itself can't wait for the day to come. And all things will be made new. And creation can tell that we've already been made new. And it can see us as new creatures. And it can't wait to be made new with us. It can't wait to be a new heavens and a new earth. So it can be the right kind of place for us and God to dwell forever. Creation itself is longing for this day. And it's the ultimate reversal of the curse. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. It's new creation. You know why the briar isn't going to grow in the new creation? Because Jesus took the last briars, the thorns, in his crown when he hung his head on the cross. He took the curse. He bore it in full. And now we are new creatures on the narrow way, on our way to a new creation. No more curse only eternal life. And as it says at the end, this will make a name for the Lord. And there's the ultimate goal, folks. That's where we're ultimately going. This is all about God glorifying Himself in the gospel. 
And the more God pursues the glory of being a perfect Savior, the more He pursues saving you perfectly. They're not two different pursuits, His glory or your salvation. They are the same pursuit. He wants the highest glory attainable for being your perfect Savior, which means He has to save you perfectly if He's going to do that. So He gets all the glory, and you get all the joy and peace and mercy and salvation and grace. That's where we're heading. So, let's wrap it up. Summarize the gospel. It's a gospel of free grace. It's a gospel of the lordship of Jesus. It's a gospel of repentance from sin. It's a gospel of sovereign grace that alone saves and justifies and sanctifies. And it's a gospel of newness of life. A gospel of eternal life. A gospel that gives all glory to God. You and I, let us be bold and courageous in this culture. Bold and courageous to share this gospel and to stand for this gospel and even to suffer if need be for this gospel as God might will it. For it is on this gospel that the church stands or falls and that you stand or fall. Is this the gospel you believe today? That's where we started. Is this the gospel you believe Is this the gospel that you trust for your salvation? Come to Jesus today. Let us run to him. Come to Jesus and find in him your all and all forever. Find in him perfect joy that satisfies forever. This is the biblical gospel. Let's pray. Father, you are amazing and wonderful and you gave us this perfect gospel and we thank you for it today. Write this gospel truth upon our hearts and make us deep lovers of this gospel and may we not just be good little theologians and Bible students that believe the right things, but oh, capture our hearts to love this Jesus, to truly bow the knee, to repent of our sin and oh, take us to him. We want Jesus today. We don't want him for all the all the benefits that we would rather have than Him. And if we could get Him some other way, we would try that way. No, we want Him. We want Him above all. So we come to You, Lord Jesus, now. We come to You, Lord Jesus. Amen.